this is David Abel, Chief Academic Officer, ELA of Unbound Ed. Today, we're going to be talking to Dr. Tim Shanahan. Timothy Shanahan is Distinguished Professor of Urban Education at the University of Illinois at Chicago, where he was founding director of the Center for Literacy and chair of the Department of Curriculum and Instruction. He is the principal investigator of the National Title I Study of Implementation and Outcomes, Early Childhood Language Development. Professor Shanahan was director of reading for the Chicago Public Schools. His research emphasizes reading-writing relationships, reading assessment, and improving reading achievement. He's a former president of the International Reading Association. In 2006, he received a presidential appointment to serve on the advisory board of the National Institute for Literacy. And he was inducted to the Reading Hall of Fame in 2007. So Tim, tell us a little bit about the work you do and what inspired this work. Well, I've been in literacy really since I was a teenager. I, I started uh, tutoring in inner city schools when I was, I guess, 18 years old, 19 years old, and uh, started studying reading as a result of that. I was kind of curious what was going on and, and uh, in some sense have, have been you know, banging at that ever since. These days, most of my work tends to fall in a couple of areas, uh, certainly looking hard at, well, classroom instruction generally, what you know, how p- teachers are teaching reading and language, especially to younger children, and, and uh, you know, just completed a study, it's not published yet, but just completed a study for the Department of Education where we've been conducting observations in about a little more than a thousand classrooms nationwide and so that's got some interesting Mm. insights about what's going on out there so that's something I'm working on another area that been doing some research on is is disciplinary literacy which sort of pushes you to the other end of the age spectrum you know looking not at so much at little kids but at, at the older kids and you know how they read history and science and things like that and doing uh, you know work there in fact that's that part of the common core standards uh, my wife and I actually did the first draft of that part of that whole section of, of the standards based on on some of the work we've the been doing. reading and history science yeah, and technical yeah, subjects yeah. yeah so that's the whole reason why that's there is because of well not just our research but you know that that body of research that that we contribute a little bit to. So so those are some of the kinds of things that I'm involved in. You talked a little bit about the Common Core, and I wanted to ask, since the Common Core was introduced in 2010, and here we are in 2017, seven years later, uh, more or less, the name has obviously undergone some changes <laughs> in depending on uh, what state you're in. And we were just discussing a state in which they were making some changes or trying to make some changes. But what have you, what changes have you seen in the last seven or so years in schools and districts? We're actually going to conduct a study on this. We're going to, we did a nationwide survey at the beginning of Common Core to get a, a baseline of practices. And now we're going to go back and and, and again, do a nationwide survey to see essentially what's changed. But what I see myself just, you know, and, and, you know, what I get a sense of from teachers' questions and all, you know, all the kinds of evidence I have that allows me to, to make guesses about my world. I, I definitely think that teachers are trying to get kids to engage with more informational texts than they had been doing, you know, a lot more reading of science and social studies and current mm-hmm. events and things like that. Uh, I think people have made an honest effort. I don't know how well they've done, but they've made an honest effort on trying to do more of what gets referred to as close reading. Mm-hmm. Certainly, uh, you know, trying to engage kids in 
in deeper thought about text, you know, through that. I definitely think that writing assignments have shifted away from when writing was going on at all, and I think it's picked up because of, of Common Core, but it isn't now so much about, you know, tell me about all your life and thoughts and sort of diary and journal writing, which yep. used to just be the staple of the classroom. Everybody writes in their journal every day, that kind of thing. Kids are actually writing about stuff that they're reading and the content that they're studying and so on. So I definitely think that there are have been changes towards you know trying to get you know greater content, greater rigor. Some of that is good. Some of that is probably miscarrying. But at least those efforts are in place, and and I do think teachers are taking that seriously on scale. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but we'll see when we actually, you know, get the surveys and see what people, what they're really saying. Yeah, I'm looking forward to seeing that. <laughs> You've touched upon this a little bit, but what has surprised you? Again, this is more about, you know, certainly you're going to get into this when you actually do the study, but in terms of what you see when you walk into classrooms and also maybe more just in the public sphere, what has surprised you regarding how teachers reacted to Common Core college and career ready standards, higher standards. What has surprised you regarding that reaction, both positively and negatively? Yeah. You know, I might have been the first person giving public talks to teachers about Common Core because I was Mm. invited to do it right when they were being issued. And so I've been doing this for a long time. And I can tell you my my sense having at this point probably talked to tens of thousands of teachers in the last, say, six, seven years about this topic. Teachers have bought into it to a great extent. I, you know, I've never seen teachers terribly resistant. Um, hmm. I, the kind of comments that you don't hear them anymore but used to hear a lot would be, I didn't think this so- it sounded like a very good idea or anything I'd heard about this sounded pretty bad. Mm-hmm. And now... You know, when I listen to this and hear what's really in there, or you have us read, I would like this for my children, mm-hmm. meaning their own, you know, their you know their parents, their own children, uh, and so they'd say, since I want this for my kids, of course I'm willing to teach this. Right. Also recognizing, but I don't know how, or this is going to be hard, right. and and uh, I I do think that there certainly have been teachers who have been led to believe that there's something bad in here or that somehow these standards violate some, you know, research principle or something, and, and you know, they've got to do it a certain way to uphold that, and, and so the standards are a problem. But frankly, when teachers get a chance to see what the standards are, which is, you'd be surprised how rarely that happens. You know, <laughs> school districts, you know, will distribute the, you know, them. You know, here are your fourth grade standards. And that's sort of the end of the show. Or they'll yeah. make a presentation about the standards. Oh, here are the shifts. And that's sort of the end of it. Um, and so those teachers often are, you know, very uh, you know, upset about the standards or stymied by the standards. But in fairness, they haven't really looked at them. When they do, I, you know, I get, you know, I see why the, the surveys of teachers tend to come out so high. Yeah. They like what they see. They don't always feel supported. That showed up in the in the surveys we did initially, mm-hmm. and I think a lot of the controversy and the shifting the names and all that kind of thing, as it became a political football, teachers and school districts started. Well, you know, maybe we shouldn't have a workshop on that. Right. And right, right. so there's a, a you know a kind of a, 
in some sense, the opponents start to win because instead of allowing it to be effective, yeah. you know, they, they interfere with it. But, you know, honestly, usually I'm talking to audiences of teachers. When I talk to audiences of, like, legislators uh, at the state level, I get exactly the same kind of thing. They're, they're upset and worried about different things than the teachers are. You know, teachers might be, well, I don't understand how I'm going to teach that. Our books only go up to this level. Or, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, we only have six copies of each. So I have to do this all in a small group. You know, they've, they've got very practical concerns. You know, the legislators are, oh, isn't this a federal takeover? Or aren't, yeah, yeah. You, know, you know, isn't this going to force our teachers to collect this kind of information on the, you know, they have those kinds of questions. But exactly the same kind of a reaction. When they actually look at the standards themselves, they say, wow. That's not what I'd been led to believe was right. in there. I don't want to come out strongly for these things because of the you know the political heat around the the the, the label. Because a lot of my constituents think we're going to back away. That when you actually took them through what was there and what wasn't there, uh, gee, we don't want our state to back off of that. And in fact, those states haven't. Um, <laughs> That's most states haven't. Most most states haven't. It's true. Most places it hasn't been controversial, but when it has been. I, it, the controversies tend to be based on non-educational issues. They tend to be based on constitutional issues of who has the right to, you know, have a say-so in this. Right. And that's not my table. Right. And I'll leave that to the constitutional authorities on, you know, that's, <laughs> that's not my game. But, if, you know, these standards are attractive to teachers, and I do think that a lot of states and school districts still are in need of, of real serious investment in, in getting them implemented. Um, implementing the standards, actually there's a couple things I want to talk about, but implementing the standards, what would that, how, how do we do that? One of the things that we bump up against a lot, um, and you know, we talk a lot about curriculum, we talk about a lot about using good materials as a way of implementing standards. Sometimes, and I'm going to say it's more in the secondary ELA field, for various reasons, we get up, we bump up against what we call teacher autonomy of like, you know, you're taking away my To Kill a Mockingbird unit or, you know, you're just, you're, you're making, giving me the scripted curriculum. And I'm just wondering if you've encountered that too or if that's just more of a, a misunderstanding. Well, I mean, in some cases, what teachers are teaching, it, it, it maybe is inappropriate. They're, you know, heck, I, you know, I've got a group of ninth or 10th graders here, and I'm using materials that any 7th grader should yep. be able to read because a lot of my kids are lower readers, and I don't know what else to do with it. And in fact, the school district told us to yep. buy something easier, and so we did, and I've got that set of novels, and I've built up over the years a set of lesson plans, and I feel very comfortable doing this, and now you're coming in and saying, and this kid should be reading ninth and 10th grade text. And that would be some literature that I love and respect, but I don't think these kids can do it. And yeah. I don't have the time uh, to, to do all new lesson plans or the district won't buy the new books or, or whatever, or those belong to the 11th grade, yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah, on yeah. and on and on. So those things do happen and those are real and those do, you know, limit uh, implementation. Of course, even just that little anecdote or that little description of, of why people might be saying no starts to describe to you, well, what kinds of things could we be doing? Well, some of it is professional development. Mm -hmm. The teacher I was just describing. No, her lessons are pretty good. It's just that they're at the wrong level. Yeah. And so she might not need a workshop in how to teach close reading. What she needs are, are some planning days 
you know, wait, that's not how we use our professional development time. Well, for her, that would be the, the best thing if she and a team of teachers could get together to develop those new units. And in fact, they do that in some school districts and have done that. And now, you know, now I don't mind doing it because I have right. the stuff I can do that with. Sometimes it means buying some new stuff or just as importantly, maybe shifting it around gee, we used to let, give that to the 11th grade teacher, but now we're going to give it to the 9th, 10th grade teacher so they can, they can work with those books. Or in elementary, so, you know, they have the book rooms. Yeah. And there's certain shelves for particular grade levels. You yeah. know, what if we relabel those? What if we move those around a bit to fit the curriculum better, fit some of the other types of things we're trying to accomplish? So there, there are things like that that can be done. And then obviously there are places where it's just implementation means you've got to teach a teacher how to do this. Yeah. Uh, it is absolutely absurd to think that you're going to have tens of thousands of teachers all figuring out how to do a close read or how to teach kids to write from sources, and they're just going to pull it out of their hat. Yeah. That's, that's not going to happen. And, and so you know, I, I, I do think there are districts that get come up against some knotty problems. We've not been using a textbook. Our teachers have all kinds of stuff that they've made up that aren't teaching the standards that we now have. We don't see a quick way of getting there, so now we want to go to a program. Well, the teachers are kind of looking at that and going, well, that's Common Core. Common Core is just buying a program. No, right, the, right. the district has made a decision that, you know, there might be other ways of getting there, but this might be the fastest or the most supportive and maybe they're doing it ham-handedly. You can do Common Core with a program. You can do Common Core without a program. But obviously, if you do it without a program, you've got a lot more development work that you have to do locally. And there's a cost to that. And so do you put people in something that may be scripted or at least even if it's not scripted, it's highly directive yep. and I don't get to develop it myself? Or do you throw the weight of, you now have to redevelop everything, good luck to you. I mean, yeah. <laughs> there, there has to be something between those two extremes, I would think. Right. But it's often posed that those are sort of your choices. And I don't think those are the choices. I think that what if you get a program and now you sit down and see how you want to you know, adjust from it and, and, and use it as a base for what you're trying to do. In other words, even if it's scripted, maybe you don't want to use the whole script. Maybe yep. you want to choose. Maybe you want to re-script right. uh, and, and so on. Why can't we do some of that? I want to switch this up a little bit to talking more about reading and literacy. So generally speaking, I think everyone in this conference at this institute would agree with the statement that we want every child to become a literate adult. I hope that everyone in Washington, D.C. would also agree with this statement. What does that mean? Let's talk about the idea of literacy. And I'm wondering if you can define literacy for our listening audience. Literacy uh, refers to really the ability to use text to meet your needs, to solve your problems. It... it I, you know, I'm not going to give some kind of a technical definition, but mm-hmm. but you know it includes a, a whole range of skills and abilities, including just the, the most basic kinds of ability to decode the text. You yep. know, can can or to do simple things like write your name um, that are are very basic. And you know, oh boy, I hope we teach that to all of our little kids. You know, to you know, how do you take a like a you know, 500-page book on philosophy or, you know, yeah. and, and read it with some kind of depth of understanding and, and, and appreciation. 
and everything that might lie in between those. Um, I, I've been involved in uh, all kinds of legal cases about uh, things like product safety, you know, on the consumer end or workplace safety on, on that end of things. Um, I, gee, if you're going to be a custodian in, in, a, in a building, how high a level do you need to be able to read to be able to read the, the, the health and safety recommendations on the cleaning fluids and mm-hmm. so on that will tell you that this shouldn't be used by a woman who's pregnant or that this shouldn't be used by a woman who might become pregnant or that you need to wear safety goggles because this can blind you. Or What you often find is that those information sheets are written at like a high school, at a college level, you know, for people in jobs that, rare that you have more than a high school diploma and uh, you might not even have that and and so you look and say well gee, that's that's literacy being able to read that well that's just a label that's yeah. just, it's a life and death death matter for those people i mean it it, it really does matter what about the voting that goes on, you know, the, the, the literacy that goes on in a, in a, in a voting booth? We're, we're audio taping this right now. We're in uh, Florida. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I worked on the 2000 election for, I did the, not know that. for the Orlando Sentinel, a big newspaper down here, that asked me to analyze the ballots to see what kinds of reading mistakes people would likely make that would spoil their ballots. And in, in, not in the in the machine uh, voting uh, counties, but in the paper ballot ones, which tended to be the poorer counties with the lower education levels. And, you know, I remember, you know, them asking me and me saying, well, I, I, I don't get it. I, you know, I go through and tell you what kinds of mistakes people are going to make. What good is that? And they said, well, we actually have the ballots that people cast. We're going to match it up and see if you're right. And wow. unfortunately, I was. And, and so... Uh, many more ballots were lost in that election due to people being unable to read the material, not to machine failures and things like that. In my own county, uh, in Chicago, Cook County, we lose something like 5 to 7% of the ballots every election due to people just making reading mistakes. You know, wow. it says mark two candidates, they mark three, that, you know, it, it just doing things that, that don't follow the rules because they can't understand what the, what's put before them. They're losing their their franchise, you know. Here, here, back in the 1960s, the Supreme Court said that literacy shall not be a barrier to people's ability to vote in a democratic society. And here we are, 60 years later, and it's still a barrier for a significant part of our. And you, you can go on and on like that. Yeah, it is. Literacy is a tool of power, power over your life. It's a tool of participation, being able to participate fully in a society. It is not trivial that there are people who can't read well enough to work at the kinds of jobs they want to work at, to be able to, to uh, save their money and, and, and perhaps invest it in the way that they'd like to, to be able to educate their kids, to be able to participate civically. It just that, that is not a small matter. And so every teacher who ever hears this, that, you know, this, this is... This is one of the greatest acts that you can do for somebody is to teach them to read. It's an act of love in, in, in my uh, parlance. I, you know, it, it's just uh, you know, it's the best thing we can do for these children. Switching it up a bit, but keeping that, defi- that very powerful definition in mind, sometimes you will see something in like a magazine or online, you know, eat this, don't eat that, or you know, exercise like this, don't exercise like that. And there's an explanation provided as to why an entree or a way of eating or, or 
food is healthier. When it comes to literacy practice or instruction in the classroom, we do know that some of the practices that garner the best results, we know there are things that work. Yet there are these myths that prevail. Can you give us some advice? Can, can you be the person who says, do this and don't do that <laughs> based on, on research and what we know to be true? Yeah, well, yes. And I mean, it, it's sort of like nutrition. Uh, yes, we can. There are things that we know with high degree of certainty. Yeah. There are also things that are open questions that you'll get, you know, more than one answer and, and you know, kind of dueling studies um, yep. that exists in our field as well. Scientists have gotten smarter over the years about how, not just in, in you know, our field, but generally about how do you pull that together and how do you synthesize a body of research so that you actually come to a standard idea. I mean, one, one of the <laughs> basics of, of conducting a research study is you want it to be, you want to be able to replicate it. Mm -hmm. You know, if, if I want to claim that kids learn in a certain way, or if you want to claim that eating a certain way is going to make you healthier, you don't want it to be, well, that'll work for some people, but it's not going to work for others. Yeah. And if, if it does work for some and not for others, can we identify, you know, who it's going to work for and, and so on? You, you don't want, well, it worked in my study, but it didn't work in the three studies after, but I still think you should do it. Right. You know, you've got to have some way of settling that. And in fact, we do. We have methods now that make not just the original empirical studies where you're collecting data from people uh, to make sure that those are consistent and replicable and all those good things, but, you know, even when it comes to synthesizing the studies and pulling them together, that we would do it in a standardized way. Mm -hmm. We do it in a way that's appropriate scientifically so that, frankly, everyone would come to the same conclusion. Now, of course, if the original studies are flawed in some way and there's some error there, we're, maybe we'll all come to the wrong conclusion, but then we'll be able to figure that out, you know, as, as more research is done. Uh, it doesn't make you right all the time but it does make it possible to see where a mistake is or to see where a problem is so that you actually can give people pretty good guidance with research. Um, and, and so I, I do try to do that. I have worked, oh, on a number of federal uh, research review panels, sometimes even chairing the panels, to essentially guide these meta-analyses, as they're referred to. Uh, same kind of work that's being done in medicine and engineering mm -hmm. and any number of fields. Uh, you know, how do you take these bodies of research and turn them into useful findings that that, that account for the differences and and, it, and and make sense of why sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't or why it works really well in some cases and only slightly well in other cases, that kind of thing. So I feel like I'm pretty good at that. I've even won awards for, for that kind of work. You know, none of us know all of it, so it's... Uh, it's one of those things I, I do think research can, can help teachers with, with and school administrators with a lot of decisions that they make. I think a lot of times they think that there are choices when they're, you know, it's, it's I, I've watched two guys eating their breakfast this morning and one guy was sitting there eating a bowl of oatmeal and, the, and, a, and a bowl of fruit and the other guy came up and said, oh, I guess you're going to eat healthy today and I'm going to harm myself. And he had right. all the fried stuff and the, the meats and the, you know, all that stuff and, and, uh, you know, it's 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 that kind of thing. Sometimes we know what to do, but we yeah. don't do it anyway because, boy, that stuff is going to taste good. <laughs> so, but to, to push a little bit on this, like, what do you think is like, and to use the metaphor, what seems to taste good in, in literacy instruction that we know 
that was <laughs> is unhealthy or not really getting the the intended results. Yeah, well, there's one of my pet peeves is is what gets referred to as independent reading, and you know, you've got to be real careful in education because a term like that means nineteen different things sure. to nineteen different people, but. What I'm talking about is is for many years, including when I was a classroom teacher, teachers have been told that they should have kids, you know, pick books that they want to read and go off and read on their own and, you know, give them a set amount of time every day. And, and, and this is going to be really good for them because they're going to get a lot of reading practice. And, and research isn't so kind to this. <laughs> it's, right. it's not that practice is a bad thing, but I have a teacher sitting there, I have an adult who's able to work with these kids. Uh, Helping these kids read on their own for whatever it gives them doesn't give as much as reading something with that teacher and working with that teacher with it. So, you know, I would much rather see schools using that that portion of the school day, that 15 minutes, 20 minutes, half hour, whatever it is, for instructional interaction of the teacher and the kid over text and with text and, you know, kids reading text under teacher guidance and, and maybe some guidance in the selection of the text so that the kids are picking things where not just for enjoyment, not yep. just for taste good, but where some learning can happen too. It's, uh, but it, it, that's a tough fight because one, teachers have been told it's a good thing. Two, it becomes a kind of a crutch. It's my school day just got easier. I, there's a block of time right. where... Now I can do some paperwork. I can do, you know, get my lesson plans in or get my grades in or do whatever in 97 other things. So I'm not against kids reading, but I, I do know that the reading that they do when they're in, a, in an instructional situation versus the reading that they do when they're on their own, in terms of effect, the, the, the teaching one is about eight times more effective. You get about eight times more payoff. So again, it's not that you don't get anything out of reading on your own, but that's kind of a right. baseline. That you know, <laughs> gee, if I didn't have a teacher here and I read things right. I just want to read, it'll probably give me some benefit. But boy, if somebody would work with me and help me and you know give me some guidance and direction, I could probably get eight times the right. the, the growth rate. Well, okay, that's like gee, you'll get some calories out of that candy bar. But understand, it's not going to be yep. the you know the same quality of calories that you're going to get if you actually had a sandwich or a you know a salad or something like that. Well, there's also a relationship between effort and impact, right? So like little effort on the teacher's part. This is not something like one of those <laughs> magical things where like I did very little and it there was this amazing impact. Yeah. It's actually I did very little. And there was very little impact. If I did more, there would be a greater impact. Exactly. And that's um, true for both the student and the teacher. Uh, let's talk a little bit about instructional levels. You've <laughs> written about this a little bit. What is, there's a, uh, you know, a lot of teachers, a lot of teachers in the district where I live in New York City, largest district in the United States, will be using books, texts, stories, passages that are at the student's what's called their instructional level. Can you talk to us a little bit about that? Sure. This is, a, a, this is a, an old, old idea. Um, this is an idea that it actually, if you go back to the 18th century, you will find uh, the first school books 
where you actually try to move from one level to another. You could even argue that it's older than that, but it, it, it starts there. The McGuffey readers in the 19th century mm-hmm. were graded readers. We don't know how he did it. We don't know, you know what theory you know, McGuffey had in his head, but we do know that the first grade books were easier than the second grade books were easier than the third grade books and so on up the, up the scheme. And, and so we've long held this notion that, you, that books varied in difficulty and you brought readers along this continuum of difficulty. In the 20th century, it kind of gets scientized. We start to, you know, collect data, and now we start defining things clearly. We know very much what goes into a school book now in a way that we don't know from, you know, 150 years ago. Um, and, and in the 1940s, we, we get a notion that there's something called an instructional level. That is a particular way to match books to kids. And, and the, the, the one that they started with was 95 to 98% accuracy, which would mean if you gave kids a passage from the book, say a 100-word passage, they would make no more than five mistakes in it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if, if they made more than that, you'd say it's too hard. Another thing, you, you could ask the kids questions about what they read. And, and the, the notion, again, for that instructional level, the, the appropriate match would be the kids could understand or answer, say, 75 to 90% of the questions. And if they could, so you ask them 10 questions, and if they can answer eight of them, then this might be a good placement for the, for the youngster. And, and people have played with those numbers a bit and, and moved them up and down. So, oh, no, that isn't the instructional level. The instructional level is this or that. The question, is there a way to match kids to text that facilitates learning, that you're going to get more learning if it's easy enough? If it, And what we're finding is, no, it, it's, it's, it, that's kind of simplistic. And it, it's not that kids won't learn to read from being in those relatively easy books. It's, will they get to read text at a high enough level that when they leave school, they're going to be able to do the kinds of things that they need to do? A lot of studies are saying kids are falling about in the American society, falling about a year to a year and a half short of where they need to be when they leave high school. And therefore, gee, if you teach everybody at their level and you don't try to pull them beyond that, then when they come out of school, they can't read a freshman English text or they can't read the job training manual to take the first steps to becoming a journeyman plumber or whatever that they're trying to do. Or frankly, to get into the military to to, serve uh, in our armed forces and so on. So it's a serious issue. But the research is not supportive at all of the idea that somehow you have to teach these kids at relatively easy levels. Now, we're seeing some funny things going on now with Common Core that folks who five years ago would have said, Shanahan's an idiot, you have to teach kids with text that, where they, have to, they can read 95% of the words. Those same people now, magically, the instructional level is 90%, mm-hmm. which means harder books. So now they... Oh, we're in line with Common Core. But that's not really what Common Core is asking them to do. Common Core is actually saying they're specifying text difficulty levels and saying teach kids to to handle that and, uh, you know, at these different grade levels and, and, you know, move them along that kind of a, a continuum. So there's this very strongly held belief of... not the, from the teachers, it's really come from teacher educators. Uh, it's been imposed on teachers, but most, the, the majority of teachers, especially at elementary level, vast majority, are, are trying to teach kids at their level. The states are asking them to teach kids at somewhat harder than that. Yeah. 
And it, that's a, a real uh, uh, dissonance-causing situation. If I'm going to be good to kids and, and really move them along, I've got to teach them at their level, but the state wants me to teach them with harder stuff, and what am I going to do? The research says they don't have to be afraid of teaching kids with the harder stuff. It doesn't hurt them. It, uh, in fact, in all the studies, it, either, it comes out one of two ways, either teaching with the harder things makes no difference. In other words, the kids learn to read just as well uh, as when you go to all that trouble of testing them and matching them with particular texts and having all these levels going, or frankly, they do better, uh, that they get greater opportunity to learn because they figure out more stuff from those texts, from the either their own reading of it or from the teacher's instruction. And so if anything, teaching kids beyond the beginning level, say beyond first grade level, to to, to read with instructional level texts all the time is probably a, uh, a real disservice to the kids and, and it's something we need to learn to get beyond. Mm-hmm. Can you speak really quickly to the role of read-alouds in the early grades, K2, and where we, you're seeing read-alouds being done or not being done well in the upper grades? Reading aloud to kids is a terrific thing, and research is very supportive of reading to kids. Um, But the way it's being used in a lot of schools is, oh, this text is hard, I will read it for you. I don't mind that so much if it's something, let's say it's a science book. Mm -hmm. Uh, We're trying to teach science. We want kids to learn the science information. Uh, We've got a chapter here that my kids are struggling to read. We don't have time to go through a whole... I'm going to read it to them because I don't want them to miss out on that information. That doesn't offend me in any way. That's very reasonable. School sends out a safety thing saying we want the kids to to stay off a certain playground because cars are going to be parked there and we don't want them hurt. You could could hand out the memo and ask the kids to read it, but maybe you'll read that to the kids to be absolutely sure everybody's heard it. There are times you just want kids to get the information or you just want an enjoyable shared time. Mm -hmm. All perfectly good reasons to read to kids. Where it doesn't make sense is where it's text that the kids are really supposed to be learning to read. And that's that might be the science book in that example I gave, but it, it certainly is the reading book. And, and so this idea of, gee, you're going to have trouble with this I'm, because the state has asked us to teach with harder text, therefore I'll read it to you, that's a disaster. Mm-hmm. That means we're not going to teach them to read. We're going to read it to them when they can't do it instead of showing them how to do that. So that would be... That would be my answer. I think teachers can still read to kids, but I wouldn't read to them to, to get around reading. I would read to them to share things I wanted them to have. Right. So in that last point, in the early grades, when you are sh- like sharing like what obviously they can absorb through listening when they even are still learning to decode. Uh, absolutely. I read uh, when I was a first grade teacher, I was a third grade teacher. I read to my boys and girls at least once every day, but it was always something that I piece of literature I thought they'd enjoy, something that I thought would be great for them to think about, always well beyond their reading levels. We've been very grounded in reality, and this is a question that we ask a lot of folks we do podcasts with. It's not very grounded in reality, which is maybe annoying, but we hope it's kind of fun. And here's we call it the magic wand question. The question (laughs) is, if you could wave a magic wand and convince every teacher, let's say at the primary level, to make one change in their instructional practice, what would it be? 
This is something I can't give you with absolute high certainty. Uh, I knew you'd say something like that. <laughs> I, you know, I, you know it, there are things that are obvious that you know we would want everybody to teach decoding so well that they, every kid would be able to read with, on his own and so on, and that's a good thing. Or, or gee, I'd like everybody to 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 you know expose kids to really great literature and through teacher reading, and that'd be a terrific thing. But I'd honestly say that. More and more, what it's looking like to me from research is is that the gap is that our kids aren't getting enough language support, that they're not really learning uh, to use the language. And that, that, the whole range of things that that would include, some of that's exposure, mm-hmm. you know, reading really rich text to them instead of reading some of the simple picture books that, that those primary grade teachers seem to choose. You know, why pick a book that a youngster can read? Why yep. not pick something yep. they can't read? It, it might uh, include, it, you know, when you're guiding kids to read, showing them how cohesion works and how to link the, the sentences together and, and, you know, so how an author does that, asking questions that, that guide them through or giving them exercises that help with that. But it's also really basic things. We've been conducting this large, you know, uh, observational study in, in preschool and primary grades. The, the lack of language. I, yeah. You and I have been talking back and forth here. You ask questions, I give answers, you follow up. We, you know, we're, we're talking to each other. A multi-turn exchange between a young child and a teacher. Teacher says something, kid says something, teacher responds, kid responds. It's so rare. Yeah. It almost never happens. It's all teacher talk. It's all teacher talk, or it's, I'll ask you a question, you give me an answer, I move on. Yeah. Um, you know, it's, it's all that kind of thing. And it's, it's a... Uh, same kinds of things, but what about kids working in teams and cooperative groups and all these different kinds of arrangements where kids have to not just talk, but talk with each other about content, about the learning. That happens a lot less than you might think. And, mm-hmm. and so I guess if I waved my wand, we'd do a lot more explicit work with language and, and explicit and implicit work with language than we're doing now. The relationship between language development in those years and reading comprehension is really high. And all those pieces aren't connected yet by research. That's why I'm, I'm saying I'm going you know, to things that we're not absolutely certain. But I'm pretty sure right. <laughs> I, I, that's where I'd, I'd put my, my wand would be waved there. I'll take that. All right. Thank you so much for this conversation. It's been great. I have a lot of things I didn't get to ask you, but I'm going to have to live with that. He's making a sad face behind the baffle. 